Ian Seabrook is an underwater director of photography in the motion picture and television industry, working on a number of feature productions such as Batman vs Superman, Deadpool 2, and Jungle Cruise, along with documentary films such as The Rescue. Seabrook is also the winner of double gold and silver medals for cinematography at the 2019 Telly Awards. A full member of the Society of Camera Operators and the CSC, Seabrook holds both commercial and recreational dive certifications. Ian Seabrook, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you for having me. What you do, this very specialist branch of cinematography, which also you're a director as well, they call it the director of photography, but you have to be doing all these things in the moment. I would just love to uh, ask you about your journey and what drew you to this very special branch? Have you always been in love with oceans and the sea? Yes, when I was young, I watched a lot of uh, sort of Disney or National Geographic or, you know, the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau. I watched a lot of that and I uh, was enamored with the whole underwater world, all the marine mammals that were associated with it and in it, swimming around in it. And, you know, James Bond film like Thunderball, for example, I would always pay attention to, you know, like everyone, you try to hold your breath as long as he's holding his breath for or what have you. But and then it became, you know, fascination with finding out how things work, you know, taking apart tape recorders and looking at cameras and saying, what happens if I unscrew that? Much to my parents' chagrin, of course. But so that sort of inquisitiveness as to how things were done led to, you know, when watching these films, thinking, how did they do that? Around the same time, I, I got interested in photography, and I started learning how to develop negatives in, in a dark room. And, you know, just black and white or color or, you know, the, the differences between live film and print film, stuff like that. And, you know, also in the back of my mind, I was like, yeah, I'd still like to try that underwater because, I, you know, looking through National Geographic, you would have seen a lot of different whales, sharks, dolphins, reefs, what have you, throughout all the issues. And my parents had a subscription. So every month I was always like kind of pouring over them all. So when I was living in Australia for a couple of years and I got certified on the Great Barrier Reef with the, the PADI certification and they had a rental place that nobody else on the boat was interested in. They were all, it was more of a party boat, I guess, but I was the only one who rented the camera housing. It was a small little Instamatic camera, but I knew enough to put slide film in it, not just print film, because I wanted to try to do something with the, the slides afterwards. And um, and so either have a slideshow or, you know, make dupes or something. So and I just felt the opportunity was better for that with the slide technology anyway at the time. And so went down, took photos of the reef, and uh, I still have the photos you know, it's a lot of it is dead coral and stuff like that. But, you know, when you're learning how to dive, it, a lot of it looks pretty amazing. It's only after you have experience when you go down and say, oh, geez, this has all been decimated or, or you notice the changes. But at the time when you're brand new, you're sort of like, wow, the fact that you can breathe underwater is amazing in itself. So obviously I was even more interested after, after attempting to take photos underwater that I saved up enough money and bought a purpose-built Nikon underwater camera called the Nikonis, which Jacques Cousteau developed with Nikon. So that in itself got you used to where to point the camera uh, at what. And a lot of it, all the underwater photography I was doing at that point was everyone, of course, wants to have the same photos that you're going to get in National Geographic, but been really unaware of the time uh, that it takes to get those photographs and the fact that 
out of say 42 or 60 exposures, three of those, if that, are gonna be good enough for the photo editors. So you figure that it's just easy, you know, I mean, anyone would just think that it's easy just to go down, take the photos and, and whatever you're gonna get is gonna be print worthy, but it's obviously not the case. So as I started to develop more interest, I got a proper SLR Nikon with proper lenses. By proper, I mean, you know, professional level. And then I um, bought a housing that that camera would go in because that's basically how everyone was shooting. And it's not that I wanted to be uh, a professional underwater photographer because I talked to enough of them to know that it was very difficult to make a living at it because it was you were constantly having to write the story on the on the article you had to either have a marine biology background or you had to link with someone who knew what the fish genuses were or the marine mammals or whatever the pelagics you were photographing were so it's not just a question of jumping in the water and snapping away Although at the time I was thinking that the photos that were in some of these dive mags were not quite to the quality of the National Geographic photographers. And again, it was like, well, why is that? So again, it's figuring out or trying to figure out why um, one photograph is better than another. At the same time, as I was doing all that, I was starting to get into the film industry. I worked as an unpaid uh, camera intern. When I was in film school, I also shot the short film, directed the commercial and shot the documentary. So I knew that the camera was what I wanted to go after. And all those years of playing with still cameras and developing the film in the dark room and so on and so forth, that that was the precursor to my interest in cinema cameras. So when I started working as an unpaid intern, it was the first thing I worked on was the American remake of La Femme Quita, the Luc Besson picture. And it was called Point of No Return. It had Bridget Fonda in it instead of Anne Perio. So I worked on the second unit and there was about five other people there who were also unpaid interns. We were all working weeks of nights in Griffith Park in Los Angeles. And we were all running around trying to out, out assist each other so that the assistants who were in the union would hire us later. It was very difficult to get into the union at that point in California. And so I was, I was working on some non-union or free stuff just to get to know people and to get to know the equipment. And, you know, you'd go to the rental houses and play with the cameras and stuff like that. But nowhere in there was there any underwater work because it was, you know, there was basically one person who was doing most of the work. And it was so, the works, the assignments were so infrequent that you couldn't really make a living from it. And also it just seemed impossible at that time to either get into the union or to undertake that job description. So I kept um, plugging away and I became a camera assistant after being an unpaid intern. And I did get into a training program for camera. And then I moved around a little bit and I ended up learning how to assist the underwater cinematographer on the surface. So I was the person who put the camera housing together and sealed it and made sure that it didn't leak. And I never had any leaks. So because I had had that film stills photography, underwater stills photography background of trying to reload film on boats with in current with waves splashing everywhere and not let the salt water completely sink the camera or splash or damage it or whatever. So I had already that background, which I felt helped me to be a better assistant with motion picture equipment. Um, the first underwater commercial. So basically, if we're working on as an assistant on a bunch of 
of films. Insomnia was one of them with Al Pacino and Robin Williams. It was Chris Nolan's first studio picture for Warner Brothers. Uh, Wally Pfister was the cameraman on that. And every job we had some interesting phenomenon that would happen. We had some weird flaring that no one had ever seen before, even perturbed the people at Panavision. They were sort of like, well, what is all this stuff? Anyway, after enough of those, I started getting uh, offers to shoot things. So the first thing I actually did shoot cinematography wise as an underwater DP was a Bud Light commercial in 1998 or so. After that, the first sort of feature film that I shot was a uh, Hellraiser sequel. I don't know. And I, I can't remember if it was four or five or what it was. But, and that, again, it's a sequence that I've done several times since. It's took a couple that's trapped in a car who can't get out and the car's sinking, presented with the difficulty of one of the talent in the water being absolutely not comfortable in the water and would in no way go to the depths that the car was in, which was not all that deep. I think it was only sitting in 15 feet of water at the time in a pool. So we had to improvise and think and how are we going to get this shot? Because we have to have her as part of the sequence and she doesn't want to uh, partake. So we ended up, you know, disassembling the car, pulling the doors off and seating her in a shallower section of the pool and basically like bolting the door using C-stand arms and just sort of supported the door and used a tighter lens that I normally would use to give the illusion that she was in the car. And then, you know, used a bunch of bubbles so you can't really see anything. If I look at it or if anybody really looks at it, they can tell that she's actually not in the car. But that's, that's how we got around the problem. So that first film that I had done, I, I still had to learn. And I did learn how to adapt when, you know, the, if the talent are not comfortable, they are driving the success of the sequence. If you don't have a talent in the water, then unless you're shooting nature or natural history films if you're shooting talent in the water and, and they're not comfortable then you really don't have a sequence unless you're going to be working with stunt doubles or body doubles or what have you so and that's still my primary concern when shooting anything be it jungle cruise it's always this, it's the same you ask the same questions you know it's like who who's the talent and you want to be going in the water and do they have any dive experience do they have any water phobia so for me, the talent in the water is their safety is the most is the primary concern. And yeah, so it's talking about those, you know, in the moment improvisations, making sure you get the best shots. I can't imagine. I mean, there's so much pressure even just in filmmaking on land but when you're down there and maybe as you say there may be you just have one chance or maybe two chances you know all the you can just go into a little bit of the complex situations um and even how is it to move a camera underwater i mean everything seems slower as well these kind of physical things you have to do it is slower. The process is, is slower than it is on land. And oftentimes if people don't have experience, you know, directors, DPs, what have you, don't have experience shooting uh, underwater, they're going to be a bit, I don't know, frustrated of the word. It's just a different challenge. I've worked on very large underwater units as both an assistant and as a cinematographer. And I've seen the, some things been really slow and some show, and I paid attention to how slow some things were going and if it was on purpose or if it was just that that's just the speed the show went so I tried to trim the fat I tried to only utilize crew members who knew what they were doing and could do work within a very limited time frame but their standard for excellence was on par with what I wanted 
instead of hiring five people, I would hire one who really knew how to do something specific. So to this day, I still have, like anyone has, you know, crew that they like to use or that are that are familiar and doesn't require so much setup time or explanation as to what's happening. To move the camera through the water, it, you know, you either, it depends on what, what the sequence involves. If it's uh, swimming or, or if it's just basically doing a close-up of someone, which will involve safety divers on the talent, will involve multiple people in the water. The first and foremost thing is I like to have as least amount of people in the water as is necessary. And I've done this long enough that I know whose job is necessary and who isn't. And typically there'll be a safety diver per talent in the water which is fair enough and fine and they need to be there and then that way it's a bond with the talent in the water with their divers so that if they get into trouble they know that that diver is coming in to give them air or get them out of the water or help them in some way but to move the camera through just need to make sure that the camera is ballasted correctly which means that it's balanced for water use in other words it's no different from a steady cam on land or a libra head or a technocrane any any remote head, any camera that's on a platform or executing any kind of move has got to be balanced, even if it's on a, a head, remote head, whatever. So underwater, because you're basically hand holding the camera or sometimes it's attached to um, a diver propulsion vehicle or anything, it's going to have to be balanced. Otherwise, the shot, you'll be fighting to pull the camera down underwater to sink it, or you'll be fighting to pull it up because it's too heavy. So the point is, not dissimilar from diving terminology is that you need to be you need to have neutral buoyancy with both the equipment and yourself oftentimes the weight with which you will go diving without an 80 pound camera housing will be more you will have more weight on you depending what kind of wetsuit you're wearing or what environment what, what water temperature you're diving if you're diving in cold water you're going to have more protection if you're in warm water you're going to have less but it also depending on your body temperature so basically balancing the camera is going to be pivotal to the success of how, how much of a struggle the camera is to manipulate underwater. Something like an IMAX 3D housing requires two people to pilot it and sometimes requires uh, lift bags, which basically are uh, attached rubber buoyancy bags that you fill with air. You can fill them with air underwater. You basically just jam your regulator underneath and purge the regulator so that the air goes into the bag exactly how they use the, the uh, camera housing on JAWS because the JAWS housing was built in 1963. It was actually built for Thunderball as a test. It was never used on the film and it's a Panavision build. And so it's still actually at Panavision in Woodland Hills in California. But so the underwater cinematographer on Thunderball, who is Lamar Boren, he used his own camera housings, which were smaller lighter weight and he was able to swim with them whereas the jaws housing or the housing that was built for thunderball was massive it's a massive mitchell mount mitchell movement inverted 1000 foot magazine so you think most of the time we shot with film motion picture camera housings we would always shoot with 400 foot loads because that was when the housings were constructed they were constructed to be smaller and easier to swim with a thousand foot mag is not something that would a only fit not fit on there and you also just would dive with it but that housing for thunderball it was an in it's an inverted 1000 foot magazine so it was used on the graduate when dustin hoffman goes in the swimming pool and then it was also utilized heavily on jaws but they did have to ballast it with lift bags because it was unmovable um and so i use that as a reference to say how much technology has changed and how far forward things have all come. 
that camera housing is a good example of how difficult it was back in the 60s and the 70s. Since then, of course, there have been other manufacturers have come along and there's industry standard underwater housings from Hydroflex, which I have used. I also have my own custom equipment that I use, which is a smaller footprint. I, as a, it, kind of, it kind of goes along with the same ethos that I have about a smaller crew, a smaller crew, a more compact housing for a smaller footprint. And so far, that's how I like to work. And that's my comfort level. Everybody has their own personal way of working. And for me, a smaller footprint is best for me. Yes. And I imagine you just want to be able to be as fluid and like you can breathe with your crew. And if it's so unwieldy. And I was wondering, I mean, just looking at the amazing um, and the beauty of your underwater and of course your, your surface work too, but the water always looks so it looks so beautiful. And I wonder about that because when I've gone, you know, it's dark, say when I've gone, gone underwater, I don't know. I believe that you like a natural lighting as much as possible. So you had mentioned earlier about, you know, decimation of oceans or coral reefs. What do you have to do to make it beautiful? And what have you, I mean, it, despite its natural beauty, what have you encountered in terms of pollution or the sea of plastics? Or what are the things that we don't see maybe behind you from as you're filming? For sure, the oceans have changed a lot, and they've changed even more for people who were diving in the 50s and the 60s, kind of in, in you know, the frontier days of diving, when there was, there was a lot more fish in the water. As far as, I just want to address, as far as the natural light issue is concerned, it is my belief, and I try to implement this on every job, really, it's that it looks natural. I have worked on several superhero films where there's a suspension of disbelief. So maybe there could be, you know, a green glow or a different color glow coming from beneath, which is completely unnatural. But, you know, if that's what the script calls for, then that's what we have to do. But moreover, I always tend to think that the believability of the sequence is going to be more enhanced if it, if it looks like the person is actually in that environment. And so the audience members watching someone trapped, if it looks like there's weird glowing lights and stuff, they're going to be like, well, that's obviously, I think it'll pull them out of the film. So my favorite cinematographer of all time was Robbie Mueller, who did all the, a lot of work with Ben Benders and Jim Jarmusch and um, Repo Man with Alex Cox. Now, Robbie was a master of natural light and being able to man manipulate that in any of the films his films are still being referenced for that work that he did. And although I never worked for him, and although there were never any underwater sequences in any of the films that he worked on or shot, that doesn't matter because I think influences will either affect or deter from your workflow or your own personal work. So, you know, I've Robbie Mueller, there's James Noctway, who's a combat photographer, Andrew Wyeth, uh, painter, Andrew, Alec Colville, Alex Colville, painter, from Canada, Howard Hall, a natural history filmmaker who made a lot of IMAX pictures and also his own films. So these are all the people that I draw um, inspiration from. And before I roll the camera, all their influences are still, you know, kind of rolling around my head. And then the decisions that you make with your composition, your lighting, your framing, you know, they are going to affect that. So if you're, uh, I, I feel that anyway, I mean, Everybody, you know, many photographers have been influenced by Ansel Adams. It doesn't mean that they always, they try to copy him or that they, they try to emulate his work. It's an influence is one thing, you know, 
copying is another, but basically I do try to make it as natural as possible. And if we're in a tank environment, that's usually just having a, a surface source, a heavy surface source, and then augmenting with underwater fixtures. I tend to only augment. I don't want to have it look sourcey. So that again, it pulls the audience out of the sequence. Hi, I just want to say I'm a huge fan of all the work you've done. I grew up on X-Men movies and I just saw Jungle Cruise last week and that was amazing. So I'm seriously a fan. I was just kind of wondering, I've read a decent amount about you as well. And I know you've done work in Australia, Arctic Circle and Hawaii. So I was like wondering what were some of the challenges that you faced while filming, whether it was like extreme cold or like something from the outside environment that like you couldn't control, you kind of had to like deal with and like how that disrupted your workflow. Uh, when we did an IMAX job in the Arctic Ocean, we basically launched from Svalbard, which is the closest landmass to the North Pole. I had been in cold water before, but I hadn't been in ice water before. And I was a little, I'll use the word nervous, I guess, about what that whole experience was going to entail. And also initially what we were looking at doing was having to drill into the ice and then put li lines down so that we could get the ice ice flow over top of us. And that requires a whole list of safety regimens, which people who normally do ice diving all follow. But, you know, it, mean, it meant changing my, my regulator out so it wouldn't freeze underwater. So basically, when I got in the water, it was not as cold as I thought it was going to be. I had more than ample protection. But we had such things as icebergs rolling. I think I was, at one point, I was shooting something close to the ice. And then I, I heard the safety diver just said, you know, get out of the way. And I sort of like, huh? And you, you know, you look up and you see that this giant, massive, 40 foot tall iceberg is rolling towards you. And once they roll, they keep rolling until they, it's like a top, you know, like a spin top. It just rolls until it stops. And then we also had on that particular job, we had that classic thing that you see in a lot of those nature films where there's a crack and the entire side of the iceberg pummels into the water and creates an ice tsunami. And we were in the water when that happened, myself and my safety diver, Steve and Arnott. And the people on the support boat just said, you know, prepare yourselves. And they took off because they didn't want to get uh, wiped out by the waves. And I just thought, in what world <laughs> would you take off? So with the camera and myself and, and Stephen, we, we navigated our way back to the boat, but the ice flows changed there so quickly that that giant wave got broken up pretty quickly. It didn't really reach us, but still, when you see that coming towards you, it's sort of like, hmm, this is going to go one of two ways. And then being in water that's too hot on the reverse side of that, you will, uh, I can feel myself sweating underwater, actually. Uh, you, obviously, you feel your heart rate is increased uh, if you have to do a lot of swimming in hot water. Your exposure shoot, suit choice has got to be, you know, I've got several different wetsuits for different, different water conditions, but your fitness has got to be dialed. Your fitness and your diet is one thing that usually no one ever really considers, but I have a dive medical done every year. I have to stay in shape for the job. It's pushing an 80-pound camera through the water, even though it's 80-pound housing. It's not 80 pounds underwater. It's slightly negative. Again, I was mentioning earlier about how, how having to balance the camera. But it's all about if you, if you, you know, your lifestyle choices will dictate how successful you are moving the camera through the water for sure. Right. That's so cool to hear about, especially like I'm sure it's difficult because in Jungle Cruise, you had to emulate the Amazon 
river and the water there isn't clear. And I'm sure it's difficult adjusting to that and trying to get the shot. And especially for that movie, I know the underwater scene was like 10 minutes long. I was wondering, have you ever shot a super long scene and then have a lot of it like get cut? Or like, how long does it take to get a scene that might be super short? Well, the first part of the question is yes. So when I did the film Deadpool 2, we had an entire sequence where Ryan Reynolds and Marina Baccarin, who plays his wife, she's dead and he's visiting her in the afterlife, I think. And the initial plan, we had the entire, their entire apartment was built and then it was submerged. It was sunk. And Marina was, was extremely water phobic. She was not comfortable in the water at all. She did a lot of training and, and then she overcame her fears and did the sequence whereby she had to sit in a chair holding her breath with a weight on her lap so that she wouldn't float up in the seat. Um, she would, and basically, if she floated up, she would hit the ceiling of the room. So that's a lot for someone who's not comfortable in the water to deal with. For whatever reason, the sequence was entirely edited out of the film and it's not even in the Blu-ray special edition, deleted scenes, none of that stuff. I think what was communicated to me was that Ryan didn't like the way that the makeup looked on him. He had a burn makeup on in the film. And Ryan was actually very accomplished on his, with his breath hold. He has the, the longest breath hold of any actor so far I've been in the water with. He was absolutely uh, stunning. Uh, and by no artificial means, meaning he didn't take supplementary oxygen before he went down and did that. I know you're going to hear on Avatar that, you know, Kate Winslet had a four minute breath hold or a few people had 10 minute breath holds, but a lot of that was with um, some supplementary oxygen. There's other practices in place on that, on that film that I'm, and I'm not at liberty to discuss because I didn't work on it. But for Ryan, when I was witnessing him, he was able to hold his breath for the entire time that he had to have his lines. And here we had underwater sync sound dialogue as well, which I've done also on another film called Pathfinder years ago which basically means they have, a, they have a click track or a sync marker in the water that everybody can hear with a speaker. And then they either lip sync their lines or they just read them how they want. And then they'll get the, you know, get the lines done in an ADR stage later. But that sequence was cut. That was a several, it was at least a couple of weeks of work on that film. That's probably the only time most of, the, most of the work that I've done has made it into film. Obviously the first thing to go when, this, when the run time of the picture is running long will be the crane shots, the aerial shots, anything that's extra. So, you know, when I did a film called Tully with Charlize Theron, who I worked with in the water twice now, she's very good in the water. Charlize will know what side of the camera to look at, which is very difficult given that you, most of the actors when they go in with a dive mask on and a regulator, um, then they have to get settled and then they have to take the mask off. Once you take the mask off, it's all blurry. They can't see anything. Camera housing is black. The set's usually dark depending on if it's day or night but in that case on telly she was inside of a car so that was dark but she's that good that she can hold her breath and act and perform at the same time when in fact it's like okay what's the sequence entail you're terrified and you're underwater most people don't need to act to do that but she's able to actually still stay in character and do that kind of thing so in a case like that i figured that that sequence might get cut out of the film but it's actually a pivotal point story point in the film so it stayed in but yeah, all the footage from Jungle Cruise made it in the film. Nothing got cut out. I mean, I had, we made that film three years ago in September, shot in 2018 in Atlanta. And I was like, oh, geez, and I'm, I'm starting to talk about this film. And I don't even know if what I did is still in the film or not. So 
when you go and see the film and it can be a little heartbreaking sometimes if you do like I'm for Deadpool is the only example of when a film the sequence that we have was cut out of the film for sure when I went to see it I was like oh I can't wait to see what this is going to look like or when Army of the Dead came out there's a there's another sequence in that film which uh, tells the origin story of Zeus and Vanderho. Vanderho is played by Omari Hardwick, who is the African-American um, actor at the end of the picture. He has a fight with Zeus at the end of the film in the vault. We had an origin story that we spent weeks shooting and preparing for with stunt rigging and the whole thing's cut out of the film. So I think it was a running time issue, but I asked one of the producers about it. I said, where'd that go? We worked so hard, <laughs> but you don't have any control over that. Your job is just to shoot it. And if it ends up in the film, it's great. So, you know. Hey. Even if it's cut, it gives something else to the actors that gives depth to the other scenes or memories. But I, I can imagine that's heartbreaking uh, to see that. Yes, uh, thinking of uh, Charlize Theron, I guess because her dance training must help with, uh, you know, the, the physical training, just being able to deal with the kind of hardship. And I was think, wondering about in terms of underwater cinematography, you mentioned the things that you have to do to, to stay in shape. Is there also just like dance is there a cutoff stage or you have to be thinking about, you know, underwater uh, cinematography will become too challenging? I think once you have health concerns or other conditions that are going to prevent you from, I mean, there are physically, they can be physically taxing days. I mean, if I don't stay in shape, then for sure, you can be beaten up pretty badly by the end of it. On a typical day, I don't get out of the water. I usually, I've, with my diet, I've got I've got three or four drink vessels that are prepared in different colors. Like this is a green one here. So I have three or three or four different colors and I'll just say to the assistant, give me the green one. May I have a red one, the blue one or whatever. And you know, they've they've either got, you know, green tea or they've got uh, you know, water with apple cider vinegar in it, or they've got uh, some kind of a smoothie that's that I've made or whatever. So I don't get out of the uh, of water. I don't have the opportunity oftentimes when we get in. Uh, what's been happening of late has been a lot of run-on shooting, even on any of the second unit work that I've done or any of the other work, not not just simply underwater. It's been, uh, you know, run-on shooting, which means no one takes a break. We shoot, you know, eight to 10 hour days, but there's no sit-down breaks. You just go underwater. Usually it's enough of a process for the talent. You're usually waiting on the talent or you're, you've got other lighting conditions or can, uh, considerations to adhere to or to take care of. So, you know, you don't have an opportunity. Um, every job's different, but for the most part, once I go in, I don't ever get out. So if you get to the point where it's too physically demanding or, you know, every year I have to have a, a stress test done as part of my dive medical. And uh, so I'm interested in all that kind of stuff too. I'm interested in all the body physiology. So that helps as well. I was on a job in uh, the Norway job that we did with the icebergs. I ended up losing a chunk of my finger and had surgery and I was, you know, had a lot of mental uh, trauma thinking that I wouldn't be able to operate the camera or hold the camera anymore or swim or do anything. It's all mental, but it's not the same thing, but it is the same thing as to what, you know, Simone Biles is just going through right now. So can you do it? Are you physically able to do it? Is this a block that had therapy, but you know, I was told don't work for six weeks after that. And then almost six weeks to the day, I got called for a job in Mexico for the Marriott. And I was very nervous. And before my mind was just racing. But once I got in the water, and had my hands on the camera, I just let everything go and did what I normally do. And I was able to 
create some pretty interesting footage. Now, you mentioned about ballet dancers. That particular spot was with Julie Gauthier, who is a free diver, but she's also a dancer as well. So the spot was her dancing in the cenote on a breath hold. And uh, yeah, we only had from 11 a.m. until 2 p.m. to shoot it because once the sun you know, is overhead, it's great. But then once it goes away later in the afternoon, you're not going to have any light in the cenote. But that was the first job that I did after that accident. And I was apprehensive about how it was going to go. But in the end, I just think the environment, the water ended up, you know, sort of cleansing my hand per se, because I think the hand was atrophying and all the, even though it was one part of the hand that was injured, the rest of the hand was overcompensating and the, the skin was peeling off of it. And so by the time I got out of the water, I, I had brand new skin on and it just felt like the whole thing had been what needed to happen. So it helped it clear the mind and it helped to clear, you know, the hand as well. But, you know, if I lost my leg due to, a, due to a shark attack or some other, you know, I would probably just get one of those metal legs and keep swimming. So I would, I would do it until I couldn't do it anymore is essentially what I'm going to say. I think you're a cinematic superhero from what I hear. You're very resilient. Mm. And so, um, and yes, water heals all. And I think that, you know, all of these physical and um, artistic and mental challenges, the long hours and everything, I think it must make you particularly well suited for something that we're all thinking about here because we have the two podcasts we call the one planet that's about the environment and the creative process that's about the art so we'll share this on both but I think it it really must prepare you in some way in a survivalist way or for thinking about the future about you know what's coming down the road and you have a lot of skills I think. A great point Ian Seabrook discusses is the rapidly changing environment of the oceans due to climate change. This is particularly notable in the global coral reefs. Coral reefs harbor the highest biodiversity of any ecosystem, but these reefs are in danger. Climate change is an increasingly significant threat to all ocean life, and greenhouse gas emissions are direct causes of coral bleaching. Coral bleaching happens when coral expels symbiotic algae living in their tissue which is responsible for their bright and beautiful colors. If this process occurs for too long, the coral eventually dies. When Ian Seabrook mentions the oceans changing in the last 50 years, it's clear to see that coral bleaching is responsible for much of this change. I recently took a trip to the Florida Keys and while snorkeling saw much of this happening right before my eyes, there was tons of white bleached coral. And additionally, the Great Barrier Reef has seen approximately half of its coral killed due to coral bleaching. The bleaching of coral reefs are a clear indicator that we need to act now to halt climate change to preserve all ecosystems worldwide. Some ways we can help the reefs are by buying sustainably sourced fish and for supporting the U.S.'s participation and commitment in the Paris Agreement. Yeah, I mean, for anyone who's diving now and they're thinking that it's magnificent, you know, when I when I started diving, I was thinking, wow, this is amazing, as I was mentioning before. But then the people who, some of the, who were influences for me who had been diving in the 60s were like, yeah, this is nothing compared to what it used to be like. So overfishing and pollution, for sure. When I see films like The Cove or there's another picture that Luis Ahoy is the director of that uh, film made the name is escaping me but it was mostly about environmental impact 
on fishing and trying to re-educate certain cultures, either Thailand or uh, I'm not going to, you know, I'm just saying that Thailand is an example. I'm not saying that they're like the number one violators, but basically it was trying to educate people who, you know, fishing is what they do for a living. It's what they've always done. They don't know anything different to to make a living. And so when Sean Heinrichs is an underwater photographer, he went there and he showed them what the manta rays look like in their own environment and how beautiful the whole experience is. And, and I think a lot of the fishermen, it was kind of foreign to them. So when they saw that, he said, well, now you can change. You could, you could turn your boats into tours for manta ray, either photographers or people who want to be with them in the water. Instead of fishing them, you could still make your living as a boating captain or with your boats and your business is not going to die because the fishing is going to go away. So it's just really uh, altering the mindset with that sort of thing. And, you know, every year is there's certain seafood that I won't eat because I've been in the water with them. I never eat octopus. And not only that, I've never really enjoyed it in my mouth anyway. But for me, once I've been in the water with a lot of these species, it's just difficult for me to, in, in the mindset to you know, chow down on them or in, in, to continue doing that. So I think sustainable fishing practices are an absolute necessary and necessity. And I just hope that more happens with that, you know, as we, you know, the earth is warming, climate, global warming is obviously real. It's not some invented thing. And I hope that there are a lot more films that have the ability to you know, demonstrate and display that impact. And for sure, I would be, you know, 100% invested in participating in the making of any, some of these films where that, where the opportunity to present itself, so. Oh, yes. And I have to say about Octopus, they are amazing. They're so intelligent. They're kind of like yeah. artists of the sea. So yeah, and I don't like to eat them either. I, I couldn't, they just seem smarter than us and men, or certainly they have these amazing yes. skills. So yes. I couldn't. Yeah. And then have What's you, that you film? Know? My Octopus Teacher? Yes. Uh, I'm probably saying the name wrong, but you know, for a film that seemingly was put together with minimal equipment and minimal personnel, I was, I watched it on an airplane, which is obviously not, I mean, it's on Netflix, so you're going to stream it to whatever platform. But you know, if you're the, if you're the maker of the film, you're like, well, I didn't design it for someone to watch it on the phone. But I was sitting there on the plane blubbering away at the end of the film because you're you're so, the story is, it it allows you to connect with what I think is a much more interesting character of the octopus that is being portrayed in the film. And the way that it's done, I I just was uh, spellbound. I was, you know, I was, I was, I was upset at the very end of the film, the way they wanted you to be, right? So, yeah, I think films like that are very important. And I'm glad that it got the attention that it did, so. I think a lot of the work that the BBC, Blue Planet, the BBC cameraman, there's Roger Horrocks, there's a few other gentlemen that I'm friends with on uh, Instagram. I think the work that, that those guys do is absolutely stunning. I think they've redefined the way natural history filmmaking has been um, portrayed or exhibited. Or, I mean, it's, you know, oftentimes they use that as a screensaver in, in any of the audio video stores but absolutely stunning work and huge respect for the amount of time that those guys are out in the field trying to capture those images so 
Oh, no, it's amazing. And it really makes us care. And as um, Ingrid Newkirk, the founder of PETA, uh, said to me and has been saying her whole life, uh, they're not animals or we are animals, I guess. But you can't once you look them in the eyes, you know, there is yeah. a person in there. Yeah, 100 percent. And I was in Hawaii on one of my photo trips. I was in we were we had gone out to try to see hammerhead sharks on the big island of Hawaii. And, you know, they had they don't really it's not a plentiful place for them but there was one sort of section on the lower end of the island that the, the captain that I used to go out with quite a bit he he said oh they're down there and we went down there and it was like you know more money for fuel for petrol for the boat to get down there and we swimming around and 85 feet 100 feet didn't find them all right we're coming back get back in the boat and we're we're just blowing back to the kona coast and all of a sudden he just kills the throttle and he goes dorsal fins right there uh, those are pilot whales and, uh, you know, I already had my camera loaded and ready. So I just slipped right in. And you're not supposed to do that with marine life in Hawaii. And, you know, you can get massive fines for doing that. Basically, you're in the water and a whale comes by. That's fine. And you had your camera and you, you just happen to have your camera. And a you know, gigantic blue whale or humpback whale comes by. That's great. But if you see whales and you get in the water, you're, that's, that's the no-no. So... You know, we saw the whales, they were quite far away. I slipped in and I tried to keep up with them. Um, and all they did was just one little of their flukes and that was it, done. And they just disappeared. But we came across a pod while we were in the water, we came across a pod of pygmy killer whales. And there was a pack of them and they sent a scout out to check us out. And when that thing started coming towards us, there was only three of us in the water. I had my camera and I was, I was framing, composing and well, same thing, but I was, so I was composing and having this pelagic come towards us was very unnerving, but then it looked right at me and I was looking right at it and it swam right in front of me and you could see the eye, the eye was moving the entire time. So it was registering. It was checking us out to see what kind of threat we were. And then it went back to the pod and the pod swam, swam away. But it was pretty amazing. Again, same thing as seeing the 200 hammerhead sharks uh, in Cocos Island being in the water there. It's, it's awe-inspiring and you don't really have any, you can't, I lose the ability to speak afterwards, you know. Well, the way, and you must know, it is a communication and it, vibration. I mean, you must speak it somehow without knowing exactly how, but I, I don't know how, how you have communicated or you must have a sense i don't know how it is well for sure i've been in the water where there's been humpbacks very close they're very very loud you, you can hear them and basically when they when they are communicating especially the lower guttural tones go right through your whole you can feel them right through your rib cage so it feels almost like an electric electric shock a little bit very low end like pulse I've been in Hawaii a couple of times in the water where I've heard them. I didn't, they were very close, but I didn't see them. Again, that goes against their, you know, their, the harassment of marine mammals, which I'm 100% in support of, but still to be in the water with that is it's bigger than you. So I, I would love to have those experiences. This is completely, that was like the beauty and wonder of nature. And there was just something I came across. It was a story. I believe it was these Norwegian um, submarines were picking up these noises and they thought that it was Russian spies sending out 
probes or something because it was playing with this very strange frequency and uh, they later learned it was I, I think it was fart, farting shoals of fish and they, <laughs> yeah. they spent an enormous amount of money trying to look it was confusing them you can imagine the look, the look on the uh, on the face of whoever's signing all the checks there or the whatever the department was going yeah you know we found out what it was was not actual submarines or you know orcas pinging or it was just something completely different but it, it's such you know you have such an adventurous artistic life I, i'm sure it's like the envy of of many of your friends not ha- fortunate to be in the film business i was just wondering you've been to so many cool places like is there any place in particular that stood out like as your favorite or is there any place that you haven't filmed yet that you'd want to go to that you haven't been to that would just be a dream to go to Papua New Guinea and Komodo Island are still high on the list. I still haven't been there yet. As far as places that were favorites, I'd say French Polynesia is probably the all-time top favorite place. We, we shot the underwater sequences for Batman versus Superman there. But also the California Channel Islands. I really connect with kelp and just being down at 85 feet with these giant kelp, you know, at the base of these giant kelp forests, the way the light uh, refracts through some of the leaves and the and the bulbs and you can see every all of it along the California coast but it is I guess it's if people get enamored when they go walk through something like the redwoods or any other kind of natural forest well it's the same thing it's just underwater it's uh and also there especially at the Channel Islands it's it's got the added bonus of having you know white sharks in the water who are definitely know you're there but you just can't see them so it's kind of on edge diving, if you will. But uh, yeah, that's been one of my favorite uh, places to dive. Uh, French Polynesia is amazing. The sharks there are fantastic. So many species of rich marine life and just great experiences there. But yeah, Komodo Island, I tried going there, I think a couple of years ago, just as a, you know, not for work, but it was a pleasure uh, trip, but it didn't, it, you know, it didn't coordinate for the time that I had augmented for it. But uh, yeah, that, it's still on the list. Haven't been to the Red Sea either, um, so there's some places to go. Yes, yeah, so there's a lot of world and there's a lot of ocean. So in closing, because we are thinking about the future and the importance of the arts and and this kind of planet that we're passing on to future generations. So as, as you think about those things and the environment, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Well, I think there has been much more vocalization of global warming from the younger generation people like Greta and I'm glad that she's the ace that she is even though I'm sure she's feeling the enormous pressure of the entire world waiting for her to what she's going to say next but you know um, leaving the planet in in a better condition than it is currently. I mean, what you're what you're witnessing is, you know, years of neglect. It's the humans who've screwed it all up, and you know, the, the warming of the earth is is no different. I mean, oceans are changing, the topography is changing, muscles are being fried when the tides recede. This is all unnatural. So, uh, or maybe it's natural. I mean, maybe it's basically. I think it's Mother Nature just, you know, being pissed off and saying, "This is what you get." And so it's up to it's up to everyone to 
to change their ways, their shopping habits, their eating habits, how much gas they use, all that kind of stuff, which people think, ah, that can't affect anything. Well, you're seeing the result of it right now. I grew up in the 70s, so everybody had a car. There was there was fuel wars going on, and there's all that kind of stuff. So I, I just think making better choices, you know, the food that you're eating, seafood harvesting, all of it, it's extremely important. I mean, even if you go to change your diet to a plant-based diet, there's still, an, you know, there's still environmental damage as a result of that as well. So, you know, you, you can lead people to think, well, what can I eat? I can't eat anything. I can't do anything. I'm not supposed to wear leather. I'm not supposed to, you know, it's just, I think it's just making it more sustainable and maybe having a bit, a bit less. Yes, it's an important message. We can't say it loudly and, and long enough. I, I want everyone to start changing their behaviors but i'm hopeful i i we're lucky to meet great artists like you and great environmentalists and and people have some really good solutions so there's certainly hope there so i want to thank you ian seabrook for your commitment to celebrating sustainability your daring and dramatic camera work which have given a sense of wonder and excitement to so many iconic films and for your important contributions to underwater cinematography and action films thank you for adding your voice to the creative process and one planet podcast wonderful to speak with you both thanks very much for having me thank you the creative process podcast is supported by the yan michalski foundation this interview was conducted by mia funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students associate interviews producer on this podcast was elise curtin Digital media coordinator was Hannah Story Brown. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Andolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.